Welcome to the Death Studies podcast, a podcast dedicated to the breadth and diversity of voices in and around the academic field of death studies. With your hosts, Dr. Renske Visser and Dr. Bethan Michael Fox. Let's get started. So we are releasing this episode in November and I don't know about you listeners and you Beth, but always towards the end of the year, I am starting to think about next year's and things I've done, things I wished I'd done, things I might do next year. And one of the things I've been doing recently is learning Swedish. So Uh, In Finland, there's two national languages. One of them is obviously Finnish and the other one is Swedish. And I've tried already to learn Finnish and it's quite a hard language. And so this year I thought, let's move to a language that's closer to my native language, Dutch. So I've started to learn Swedish and it's now sometimes a bit of a muddle in my head because it's too similar sometimes that I'll just say Dutch things in a sweet with a Swedish accent but also it's really helping me because here are signs and everything and announcements and trains are made in both Finnish and Swedish so it's really helping me a lot and it's also just nice to like use my brain in this new way to like I used to really enjoy languages at school as well and I'm now back into that yes I really enjoy this whereas with Finnish I've been like I've absolutely hated this why am I <laughs> Uh, also because I feel at the time I just put too much pressure and I've moved to Finland because my partner is Finnish so therefore I must then be fluent in two minutes and it just takes time and effort but with Swedish I've got my joy back from learning languages so Beth is there anything new skills new things that you want to reflect on and talk about oh well it's lovely to hear about your Swedish I enjoy getting little messages from you sometimes in Swedish on WhatsApp that mean nothing to me are you brave enough to say something in Swedish (laughs) Uh, I'll say which means I speak a little bit of Swedish (laughs) I thought it was going to be something about your name because it sounded like you were saying Nenska that is Dutch and also like yes and no so yeah and nay in Dutch and yeah and nay in Swedish so whenever I'm now speaking Swedish or thinking in Swedish it's my brain yeah gets in a muddle and it's it's more singy songy than either Dutch or English, so it's really it has this rhythm to it, and like Finnish is like no 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 no, it it doesn't move up or down, but Swedish is very, and they don't conjugate verbs, which I find fascinating, right. and there's it's it's interesting also like telling time and all those things. It's it's just fascinating how different languages do everything slightly differently. Yeah, I find the Cornish language, which is not spoken by many people is really similar to the Welsh language so it's nice to see those kind of similarities but uh, I do envy your your many linguistic skills I think it's wonderful to be able to speak lots of languages and I think yeah both of my I've got two two sisters two brothers and and the sisters both speak several quite useful languages (laughs) Spanish French Chinese um whereas my languages are less useful I mean Welsh would be very useful if I lived in Wales but I don't so yeah um but no I can't really think of any amazing skills like like learning a new language that I've been doing this year but I've been enjoying working on this podcast I've been enjoying meeting new people working with them I've really enjoyed working with our guest today actually because today's guest is Professor Gail Leatherby and I was watching some stuff and I'd heard about Gail and I'd read some of her work in the academic journal Mortality 
and come across her and someone else I knew from a previous institution was a big fan of hers and I was like oh let's have a look into this and I watched a video of her on YouTube and in that video I was like oh I I know where she is she's up at Goodreavy Lighthouse going for a walk and I was like oh that's really near me it's one of my favorite walks you can see these seals up there it's really beautiful the views are great you can see the sea and I looked it up and I was like, she must live nearby. And I realised she lived really nearby. (laughs) So I can't quite remember how it all came about right now. But I think we got in touch and we recorded this episode when it was it was time ago. I know it was. And I know that we were recording in my mother-in-law's bedroom because we were away visiting for like half term or Christmas or something. I, I wonder if it would have been like last December. I can't remember, but it, it's been a while. And, and in that time, I've been very, very fortunate to get to know Gail and, and go for lunch with her a few times and hang out. And we recently did a creative writing workshop together for CDAS, the Centre for Death in Society. And we um, yeah, did that as part of something called CDAS Writing, which is a group of academics, including you, Renska, and myself and uh, several other people. I, I won't list everyone. We'll be here for a little while. And we're all working on this project around how writing fits into ideas about academia and death and dying and studies of grief and all those sorts of things. So it's nice and varied. I think you can find out about it on the CDAS webpage and it's just developing now. So I'm off on in a couple of weekends on a Saturday to another workshop uh, that's being run by our colleague Tamarin and that's going to be another sort of writing creative writing CDAS workshop so if anyone wants to come to that you can look up Tamarin Norwood's session it's I know I spotted it and signed up for it on Twitter where I sign up for most things <laughs> but I think it's on Eventbrite on CDAS as well so it's it's a great pleasure to introduce Gail and to have been editing this and listening back to it I wonder if you felt the same Renska finding that it's it's really nice listening back to something that was recorded quite some months ago when we've since then done a bit more work with that that person. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And also I feel we've spoken about this before. It's when you re-listen to an episode and I feel just any conversation you've had in the past, it's so nice to have the recording because there are little things you've missed the first time and we'll get into autobiographical writing and stuff like that in the episode and how memory can muddle things. But it's nice to have these recordings and to be like, oh yeah, actually they said this or, oh, I thought this at the time in her response and now I'm feeling differently. So it's it's really interesting to always yeah look back and have that record. Though it does remind me of this dystopian TV show I watched once. It was just an episode, I think it was, of Black Mirror where you can look, you know, everything is captured and recorded. So you can kind of go back and relive it again. And imagine, for pe- you know, if I think we all have a tendency sometimes to obsess a little over the past. <laughs> and if you could actually see it and live it and feel it again, oh, we'd never get anywhere. So without further ado, I'm going to introduce our guest, Professor Gail Leatherby, who is a visiting professor of sociology at the University of Plymouth and visiting professor at the University of Greenwich. She's a teacher, mentor and a researcher. Alongside substantive interests in reproductive and non-parental identities, that's non-forward slash parental, gender, health and well-being, loss and bereavement, travel and transport mobility and gender and identity within institutions, she has always been fascinated by research methodology, including auto forward slash biographical, feminist and creative practices. In recent years, Gail has become interested in writing sociologically for non-academic audiences and creative writing within academic work. 
In addition to writing her own memoir and fiction, she also runs creative writing for academics workshops and has helped to facilitate a variety of research and writing events as a consultant. We hope you enjoy the episode. So Gail, thank you so much for being with us today. A first question to kick us off is quite a broad question, but could you tell us a bit about your background and where your interest in research began and how your core research ideas have developed over the years? Okay, uh, thank you so much for having me. It's really nice to be here. I was a a mature student, so uh, I came back to higher education uh, when I was 28 in the late uh, 1980s and before then I was a a nursery nurse for eight, ten years and I know we'll return to this several times today but it was uh, a a loss, a miscarriage that meant I felt that I couldn't do nursery nursing for a while at least. So I was doing some part-time jobs and I went along to the local further education college um, to to do something to to kind of stimulate myself, and the only thing on offer really was A level sociology, and of course I said, well, what sociology? And then I I think I can honestly say that I fell in love really with the discipline. So that was the beginning of my interest in all things academic and all things political really, and then I took a sort of year out, as it were, before I started my um, undergraduate degree. And right from the beginning of my undergraduate degree, I knew that I wanted my dissertation to be on miscarriage. So I knew that it was something that already from the reading that I'd done and the talking that I'd done to uh, other people was something that was misunderstood and often misrepresented. So uh, right from the very beginning, I was sort of really interested in exploring topics that were of um, interest to me and I know personally and I know that we're going to talk about this as as we progress um, today but I've done a whole series of different projects on topics that are related to my autobiography and and topics that aren't and I just can't help really being excited by how much there is out there that we still don't know. So I always tell my students that in order to be a good sociologist, they need to be nosy. And as long as you're nosy and have a bit of an imagination, then um, then, you're, then you're good to go, if you see what I mean. And I, I guess that's the philosophy that I live by too. I think that is a major reason why we started this podcast in the first place that I at least I am I don't know about Beth, but I'm super noisy and I want to know more about all these deaf scholars and what's behind them. And in deaf studies, uh, we feel your work has really informed uh, the field in various ways, both in your work on reproductive loss and experience of bereavement and your work on autobiographical methodologies, methodologies which we also will return to later. But could you tell us a bit about how you feel deaf loss and bereavement fit into your research interests? It relates back to the my first answer in that uh, my first research project was on, as an undergraduate student, uh, was on a miscarriage, which is obviously 
about um, loss and, and bereavement. My project was entitled uh, Never Mind Better Luck Next Time, uh, which was something that several of my respondents said to me. And one of the things I find really distressing about my work in, in the area of death studies, but also my work more broadly on non-motherhood and um, infertility and social motherhood and different ways in which to uh, be a parent or not is so many things that I was saying in the late 1980s and early 1990s I'm still saying and still having to say or I'm finding people are saying things that I was saying 30 years ago about their own experience so uh, that in, in some ways you know it's been a real privilege to work on on all of this work but in other ways it's kind of disheartening that we're still having to argue the same thing and as well as that first project on miscarriage I have been involved on in two other projects about perinatal loss specifically that I know we'll talk about a bit uh, later. My PhD was on predominantly women's but men's to a lesser extent experience of infertility and voluntary childlessness which of course is about a loss too because it's a a loss of possibility, a loss of something that someone could have and and that they really want and that they're not able to have. And also, as um, I've got older, as many of us do in my adult life, I've experienced quite a bit of loss as an, as an adult. So loss of other adults, basically. And following two significant bereavements in uh, 2010, uh, my husband John died and in 2012 uh, my mum Dorothy died and since um, both of those deaths I've started to uh, write a bit more autobiographically about um, loss as an adult and my dad died in 1979 and I had written a little bit about that before including uh, one short article that I wrote with my mum and that was about her loss as a a wife, a partner, and my loss as a as a as a daughter for um, an open university book on death studies. So my research in this area has largely focused on reproductive loss, but my writing has extended and in- included other aspects of loss. And in 2015, you wrote a paper entitled "Bathwater Babies and Other Losses: A Personal and Academic Story." And it's one of the papers we often recommend to reading to other people to see an article that is perhaps a bit different than other journal articles. Could you tell us a bit about how you went about writing it and what that paper is about? Thank you. Yeah, that that paper is um, a a mixture of different sorts of writing, really. So since uh, John's death in 2010, as I said, I started to explore then with different sorts of writing. So I started to write a bit of fiction and I started to write a bit of memoir uh, around um, my experiences. And uh, this is this is funny in terms of uh, legacy because I wrote a, a book for the autobiography study group called He Himself and I, which is specifically about my dad, whose name is Ron and John and my relationship with them, obviously. And my dad was a blue-collar worker all his life. He, he died quite young. He was only 55 when he died. But 
he was also a fiction writer and he wrote a 40,000 word memoir. And I always really loved, I've got a, a little chunk over there with the odd little story that he had published in the 1970s. And I'd always really loved that kind of writing and never thought that I could do anything like that. You know, I knew I was okay at the academic stuff, but I never thought I could do this kind of creative stuff. And then, so I just kind of began to play about with, about with it. And then I kind of realised that actually everyone can do this. Everyone is creative. Everyone can be creative in, in, in different sorts of ways. And and I started to publish some of this work on in non-academic and non-academic sites and I began to think about different ways to write for academic audiences but for non-academic audiences in terms of getting our message across so you know we talk about impact an awful lot in the academy and for me impact is about more than the ref you know it's about impact besides and beyond the academy so it's about telling our stories in different ways that people will relate to you know and um, I wanted to, this was one of the first academic articles, I've done it in a few now, where I wanted to include um, some of the uh, fiction and memoir, but also to make it clear that it's interconnected with my academic and sociological self. So, you know, it's inevitable that even when I write in different ways, my socialisation as a, as a sociologist is kind of in there too, as it were. So I interwove my stories of loss um, and my memories of some of those events with my um, epistemological and substantive interest in autobiographical and feminist methodology and, 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 and death studies. And it was really interesting because it's the first time, the only time in my whole academic career well, I sent something to a journal and one of the referees said, publish it as it is. That's the first time that's ever happened to me. It's always been, oh, well, yes, this is good, but you've got to do this, this and this. Or actually, no, we don't like this at all, you know. So it was the first time ever. So one of one of the reviews, there were two reviews, one of the reviews suggested some changes. And one of the, and this, the second reviews just said, publish it. And the editor very kindly said that I could, do what I wanted. I could take what I wanted. So there were a couple of things that the the, the first reviewer said that that I thought yes, yes, I'll do that. But one of the things that they wanted me to do was to put in traditional subheadings, and I didn't do that. I didn't because I just liked the way that the story flowed as a story, rather that had some academic significance, but at the same time was you know not a traditional academic piece as as you say and yet I mean we don't say this about everything we do too but I like it too I like that piece you know it's a piece that I return to and think oh I'm glad that I did this really and also a relief that sometimes reviewers say please publish mm. as is <laughs> yeah absolutely absolutely and that it is okay to do things you know differently in in different ways which actually more and more journals are are interested in supporting now but I think in the social sciences we've been a bit late coming to that really so it's good that we are now I think. Absolutely and as you've said a lot of your research has 
biographical starting point, and much of your research concerns uh, childlessness, either voluntary or involuntary. And you've written an article on ambivalent autobiographies of non-motherhood, which you co-wrote with Catherine Williams in 1999. And we're very interested in that phrase, ambivalent autobiographies. Could you please tell a bit about that? Yeah. As I said, my PhD was on uh, infertility and voluntary childlessness. When I started my PhD, I fit the medical definition of infertile, and I was then involuntarily childless because they're not exactly the same thing, even though they're sometimes used interchangeably. Halfway through my PhD, uh, when I I met and married John, um, who was my second husband, I became a, a social parent, a step parent. So that I mean that's another story, really, in that my identity changed kind of halfway through. But you know, but my autobiography was significant to the the work that that I was doing there, and from my own experience, and also from the experience of the people that I spoke to and wrote to, I interviewed. I think it was twenty six, twenty six women and eight men. And over a period of time, so they were processual interviews. So some of them I interviewed three, four or five times over the course of a year. And I also exchanged letters with another 50 uh, women who, you know, it was before the days of emails and email interviewing. I advertised um, in various places um, locally. And I also advertised in the, I lived in Stoke-on-Trent at the time, I advertised in the local, few local newspapers and in um, Staffordshire and Cheshire, and also The Guardian published a letter for me. Um, interestingly, none of the, what we would call more right-wing newspapers, and none of the tabloids would accept a letter from me. So that was kind of interesting. And I, I, so I corresponded with another 50 uh, women. So I had lots and lots and lots and lots of data. Too much, really, too much. I always tell my students to, to be a bit more contained. It, there was too much. But again and again and again, people would talk to me about ambivalence, um, even if they didn't use that word. And I think uh, feminism has been really good in um, allowing women who are mothers to express their ambivalence about their motherhood status and experience. So, you know, you can enjoy being a mother, but at the same time, find it really challenging and difficult. And feel like you want to tear your hair out and throw your children out the window sometimes even you know that space has been allowed but it's been less good at enabling women who are non-mothers to express that ambivalence and that is represented in the the wider world too so for example if you are uh, involuntarily childless and you display any kind of ambivalence then well you, you you're not really that committed to wanting a baby at, at all really are you so so you know it's not a surprise kind of thing and if you are voluntarily childless and you express any kind of ambivalence then then well well you know it's your own fault why didn't you do anything about it and in, like in terms of my own experience you know, as I've got older and I have, I do have lots and lots of contact with um, younger people um, through work and through other relationships and with my friends' children and grandchildren, for example. Just before this interview, I've just been swimming with my friend, her daughter and her 
eight-year-old and four-year-old. So, uh, no, sorry, sorry, seven-year-old and four-year-old. So there are lots of children, young people in my life. Yet at the same time, I I appreciate that if I had have had children when I wanted them, there are all sorts of things that I've done that I really value and get a lot from that I probably would never have done. So, you know, as I said, I came back to higher education because there was a gap in my life because I didn't, I, I had a miscarriage and then didn't get pregnant again. So there was this big gap that I needed to fill. And I feel lots of the things that have happened to me wouldn't have happened. So I recognise the ambivalence. And I also recognise the, the fact that, you know, if I had been a mother and possibly a grandmother now, there would be ambivalence around that too. And as I've said, the the and this is where I'm back to the point about, you know, it, it distresses me that I have to keep saying the same thing, you know, again and again, that that ambivalence is, is not, it's not allowed, inverted commas, uh, for people who don't have children, particularly women, I think, who don't have children. It's one of the myths. If I could just say this, there's a, this isn't about ambivalence, but it's another thing that really gets me. So I'll, I'll, I'll say it. I, I'm, I'm very active on Twitter now. I've got more politically active in the last few years and I'm left, <laughs> um, probably not surprisingly. And I do at times find myself defending Theresa May and I defend Theresa May when people blame her policies, her qualities, her ideology on her childlessness. So, you know, there's lots of offensive references to barrenness in relation to her and, and interestingly, um, other women MPs that don't have children too. We, don't, we tend not to talk about male MPs and whether or not they're fathers, but we do talk about women MPs and whether or not they're mothers. And um, so, yeah, sorry, that was kind of off the point, but I just felt I needed to say it. <laughs> as as someone personally who is voluntary uh, childless, I really get that as well. But I think as a woman, people also just feel they can comment on whatever your situation is. So I get accused of hating children or said you'll change your mind or so many things. But also, as you say, this is probably the same arguments that will be thrown to women 30 years ago like I think yeah. a lot of it is just absolutely. rehashing the same issues absolutely and women who I mean I've done some work on motherhood too as I think you probably know and you know women who do have children are are criticized for having too many for not having enough for having them at the wrong time for having them I spent 10 years when I was in Coventry uh working on teenage pregnancy and young motherhood and you know which is a, I always say I started I started my research career um, as a PhD student working with women who felt stigmatized because they didn't have children and then I moved on and spent 10 years working with women who felt stigmatized because they did you know so I, really we can't do right for doing wrong and I guess that gets us back to the, you know, the issue of the concern around ambivalence. It's something that we all experience. And what I think is really important is that it's important for us to talk together about what we share rather than what we don't share. And that kind of makes me think before the interview, we were, we were talking about um, a conference that I went to with my colleague Deborah Davidson in Canada. 
um, from the Association of Motherhood Studies, and one of our criticisms of the conference was that you know it does it didn't acknowledge the big difference between mothers and non-mothers, and how we might talk across that difference and make connections between us rather than than see us as as separate. Because very many childless people and childless women who talked to me actually said, "Well, I'm not." childless you know i'm i'm a teacher or i'm a social worker or i'm a godmother or you know and what's very interesting about motherhood and non-motherhood is the only way to describe a person who hasn't got children is by reference to what they've not got so it's non-mother childless child free you know there's this there isn't a word that is that that more positively encapsulates uh, the experience. I wrote um, years and years and years ago, there was a special edition of a journal. I can't even remember what it was called now, but it was a journal that, that focused on reproductive issues. And they did a whole edition on um, involuntary childlessness and infertility. And the, the journal cover was always a photograph and this was a special edition on infertility and voluntary childlessness. And the front cover was hundreds of pictures of children. So it's, it's you know, there's still a lot to do, I think. Absolutely. I'd never realised until you just said that, that not having children, it's always a negative as a... <laughs> And it's it's one of the videos just gone completely off topic now. But it, I saw a video I think on Twitter recently about a woman who said, "Yes, I don't have children, but I still like am involved in the lives of so many children. And if I would have children, I wouldn't have the energy to be involved in all yeah. those other people's children's lives." Yeah. And it's something I really relate to. That I think also with like Beth's children or my brother has children like there's still children around and I'm a different kind of woman in relation to them. And yes, I don't have yeah. children of my own, but I still parent sometimes. That exactly. Exactly. Yeah. That's what I argue that mm. I'm, you know, I'm still, and people talk to me about, um, people tell me that I'm motherly, if you see what I mean. And often adult friends um, will say that. And um, I find it, that's another thing I find interesting about the political discourse is that quite a lot of people, again and again and again I hear this, people will say, well, I'm doing this for my children. I'm doing this for my children and my grandchildren. And all I always say, well, I'm doing it for all of our children. You know? And you just... Uh, already mentioned Deborah Davidson, and you wrote a paper with her entitled Grief Work Online, Perinatal Loss, Life Course Disruption and Online Support. Could you tell us a bit about that work and why you wrote that paper? Yeah, that was a work that was subsidised by a, a small academy grant. And I think we were both, we both come across sort of uh, different online groups that were specifically uh, focusing on uh, support following uh, perinatal loss. So miscarriage, uh, stillbirth, um, termination. And we were, Deborah herself has done research on miscarriage and also experienced uh, miscarriage. Um, and we were both, we both surmised that having that kind of support would be positive and would make a positive difference. Um, in relation to my own experience, 
I didn't know that the miscarriage association existed when I had a miscarriage. Nobody told me. I only found out about it when I started doing research on miscarriage. And even so, uh, the miscarriage association and, and other similar groups are not always easy for people to access. And the internet provides, you know, a different way in which we can provide support for each other, communities of care, let's call them. And uh, so we were really interested in exploring whether or not that was the case. And what we found across um, a range, I mean, we didn't talk to anyone. We just we just looked across various groups and what we found across those groups, there were where there were uh, women, mothers, fathers and grandparents talking and communicating with each other, that it was the case that people felt that there was um, support out there that they could easily access. Um, at least the people who were accessing the support groups, of course, we don't know who, who didn't, but but and people were talking positively about that. But what was also really interesting was that there was some discussion of individuals talking about finding it difficult to talk to people that were close to them because, you know, the, t- the taboo of um, pregnancy loss or baby loss is that, you know, maternity wards are meant to be happy places, births are meant to be happy things, and when it doesn't go to plan, then people don't know what to say, you know. So although that's, I know that's true of all death, maybe it's particularly the case in relation to kind of baby loss where everyone's been preparing for a happy event as it were so we were kind of struck by the fact that people were still finding it difficult to talk to their not everybody but there are a significant number of people who were still finding it difficult to talk to their family or to talk to their closest friends because essentially their family and their closest friends didn't know didn't know what to say to them didn't um didn't know how to to deal with it as it were so there was quite a bit of difference uh, quite a bit of difference but again quite a lot of um, similarity really and we we published a, a couple of articles on on that issue and what we did was we looked at the association of internet research ethics because we wanted to be uh, because we were essentially lurking in websites you know we wanted to be very careful about how we how we presented that and so um we read that one of the things um that is an issue with internet research is that although pseudonyms are often used it can often be easy to trace the person and so instead of producing accounts as they appeared on the sites we produced what we call composite accounts called sort of semi-fictionalized accounts so this was kind of representative of, a, of women's experience this was representative of men's experience this is representatives of of um, the potential grandparents the would-be grandparents experience and what was really interesting about that is that we got some criticism because we were criticized then for fracturing people's stories and 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 what we were aiming to do was kind of protect people's identity but still keep true to the story so that that was quite interesting and that sort of relates to my other interests that we've already talked about when we're going to talk about again in relation to creative ways in which to present our our data really and i was 
I, I think I mentioned two projects earlier. As part of the teenage pregnancy, young motherhood research that I undertook in Coventry, we, we as a team, we did about eight or nine projects over a 10-year period. And one of the projects which arose um, from another project, as it were, because it was a theme that was coming out, was a project specifically on termination and miscarriage. So the experience that young women were having when they had a termination or a miscarriage. And we were finding, we found that there was some, maybe coercion is a bit strong, but um, encouragement for to have a termination. And um, also when young women had a, a miscarriage, it was very definitely all for the best. You know, this is all for the best and you'll have a baby at, when it's the right time for you to have a baby. So what we found was that for this particular cohort, termination and miscarriage were both seen as solutions to the problem of teenage pregnancy, which meant that the young women got no support at all. So there was no um, counselling following a termination or a miscarriage. It was all, well, just get on with your life now. You know, that's happened and it's for the best. Just get on with it. And what we also found in the research was that, that although some of the initial pregnancies had been a surprise, had been accidental, not planned, some young women then went on to get pregnant deliberately as a way of dealing with their grief that was unresolved from their experience of termination or miscarriage. And, you know, if you're going to talk about inappropriate pregnancy, then getting pregnant to deal with a grief that nobody's helping you with, it doesn't feel right, does it? So that 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 was important and also a distressing um, project, really. Thank you, Gail. And as we mentioned earlier, you've done a great deal of influential work on methodology, especially around feminist and autobiographical things. So could you tell us a little bit about what you perceive to be the value and importance of, of the kind of autobiographical approaches you take, but perhaps also feminist research methods more broadly? Okay, yes. I, I mean, I became interested in both feminist approaches and autobiographical approaches in my undergraduate uh, work. And then, you know, that really followed through in, in, my, uh, in my PhD and since then. So I've done a lot of work on a lot of different topics, some of which I'm connected to personally in an autobiographical way, some of which I'm not. But my argument is essentially that all research is in some ways auto autobiographical. And the forward slash is really important. It's auto forward slash biographical because all research acknowledges or should acknowledge the relationship between the self and the other. And there are lots of selves and lots of others there, because if you're doing a research project with other people, then it's it's important to acknowledge the relationship between the researcher and the respondents. Yeah. And this is um, one of the earliest uh, feminist publications I wrote was with a colleague called Pam Cottrell, which is, was in a special edition of sociology that was on autobiography. And we wrote about doing feminist research and acknowledging the fact that the relationship with the people that we're working with as respondents is always important in all sorts of ways. 
not only because um, respondents um, make assumptions about us and about what they think we want to know about a project, but also that we represent their stories through our filtered selves, as it were. So our own values and opinions and views about the world are likely to affect the questions we ask and what we look for in the data and how we present the data. So we're always there in some way, whether we acknowledge it or not. And when we're talking to people, researching people in any way, although they're telling us about their experience, there are others in their lives too. So there are other others that are present. So in terms of, of research, acknowledging the significance of the self and other is, is important, both autobiographically and in terms of real life lived experience. And of course, as um, you know, feminist researchers, what we want is to focus on uh, the fact that the person is, is as important, the personal and the private is as important as the, the public and people's real world experience and their gendered experience within that is important. So really, autobiography is sometimes, often, maybe in certain circles, argued to be um, self-indulgent, not, not academic, you know, not theoretical. But for me, it's actually the really only critical way to do research well, because if we don't acknowledge the significance of ourself in the work that we do, then the knowledge that we produce at the end of it isn't really as valuable as it could be if we haven't acknowledged the significance of our personhood. So our personhood is relevant to everything that we do and acknowledging that actually ironically makes our argument more robust, more what some people might call objective than if we just you know, don't engage with that critical engagement with subjectivity. So I've I've um I've also written a book with Malcolm Williams and John Scott about objectivity and subjectivity within research. And my position in that is that subjectivity and and bias are often something that are seen as the you know the baddies in social research. I always say Bias is the four-letter word of social research, overused and misunderstood like all other four-letter words. Um, and if if we basically accept that bias is always there and that we are subjective, our research is subject, and actually theorise on that and really critically reflect on the significance of our self in the construction of the knowledge, then our knowledge can only be better and more worthwhile really and the other thing about autobiography is that by focusing on the autobiography which might be research that focuses on the auto whilst recognizing the bio or it might be research that focuses on the biographies of others while recognizing your autobiographical self within that we are foregrounding people's everyday lives and everyday experience, which is what social science is all about, isn't it? So for me, I don't understand why anybody doesn't see that their work is autobiographical, because to me, everybody's work is. And that doesn't mean to say that we always have to write about ourselves. You know, it doesn't mean to say that we have to wear our hearts on our sleeves. I'm a bit on an 
extreme, you know. It's quite easy to find out quite a lot about me just from reading my academic work. And I, I appreciate that's not what everybody wants to do. But acknowledging the significance of our intellectual and personal selves in what we do is should be part of all of our research, I think. Well, thank you, Gail. I think we'd probably both agree that, yeah, we, we couldn't agree more. It's something we talk about a lot on this podcast and whether people can, you know, take the self out or not. So I'm quite interested in how people use language to try and distance themselves or create the kind of guise of, of objects. Exactly, exactly. And from from undergraduate onwards, um, and, and again, that's quite, I find it quite distressing that, that students you know, second and third year students in 2022 are thinking that, you know, they really need to write in the third person because that means their work will be more valuable. So, and but then also third person writing is often actually just very sloppy first person writing because the author argues is essentially just another way of saying I, isn't it? You know, it is. But yeah, yeah, that that's another... Uh, discussion that continues and continues. I'm a member of um, the British Sociological Association Autobiography Study Group. And the paper that I just mentioned with my colleague, uh, Pam Cottrell, which was called Weaving Stories, which is about, you know, uh, collecting accounts uh, from from women. And I was writing about my miscarriage research in there. And uh, Pam was writing about her research on mother-in-law and daughter-in-law relationships we presented that at the first autobiography conference and uh, this summer we're having our 30th anniversary conference and it's a group that I found invaluable really it's very um, enriching and supportive group and also a group that likes to play and um, there we're back to the you know the the creative really and to thinking about the different ways in which we can tell our stories and the ways in which they're as valuable and as useful as as more traditional ways of presenting data so in another paper that you co-wrote with deborah davison entitled embodied storytelling loss and bereavement creative practices and support you talk about new ways of writing and writing creatively about your academic research and the difference in relationship between the words fiction and faction. So could you please talk to us a bit about the term faction? Yeah, and that's a good question because I'm not sure it's a term I use now, but I did then. And I suppose I don't use it now because I kind of don't don't feel the need in the way that I did I guess that was quite early on in my sort of like fiction writing but really it's a a word like that is acknowledging the fact that within fiction there is always some fact you know so so even science fiction is in some ways connected to real world experience as it were when we produce facts then we have to acknowledge that they're not necessarily, you know, the truth, because we have to think about memory and the influence of 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 people, people's own values and ideologies, as I've talked about before. So there's a blurring between fact and fiction, really. So I suppose faction felt like a, a good way to acknowledge that. I suppose what I tend to do now more is 
is to talk about sociologically informed fiction. And that is relevant at all sorts of levels, really, because I have I've written I've written kind of lots of lots of fiction now. And I got very interested at the beginning of the pandemic in the issue of I live on my own and I was quite interested in the difference between loneliness and solitude. And I had a lot of company, sort of like this, really, and on duo and hanging out. I live in a flat, hanging out the flat window to talk to my friends who delivered some goodies for me or something at the at the door. So I wasn't lonely, but there there, were, there is a you know a sense of of solitude. I'm, I'm giving a, a paper in um, later on uh, this year at the Irish Sociological conference where I'm talking amongst other things about the significance of seagulls and um, I've written a couple of stories around solitude and loneliness where there are seagulls and I think I live in a seaside town and the seagulls sometimes visit me on my um, on my balcony and I was giving a lecture to a group of third years and there was one particular particular insistent seagull banging on the banging on the window all the way through so I did the students I thought the seagull probably didn't like my epistemological position um but anyway sorry i'm going off a point i'm going off a point but some of my fiction is specifically related to research that i've done so you know it doesn't draw specifically on one respondent but it draws on the kind of areas that i'm interested in some of it um relates to my own autobiographical experience but like all my other writing my sociological self is in there Sorry, some of it relates to media, something I've read in the newspaper that I was really distressed about, or some of it relates to something that's going on in the political arena that is is getting to me. I've written a few specifically pieces of fiction around death and dying, again, some of which related to my research, some of which related to my own experience, just some related to things that have happened and have made me think about it really. So yeah, I'm really interested in how fiction is useful to us as academics, not only to represent our data, but to play about a bit more with our academic understanding, as it were, and to tell those stories in ways that um, people outside of the academy might find interesting. So this is off our topic, but I've written um, a few stories about food poverty. And I wrote one on in 2017, and I published it in a site that I write on called ABC Tales that publishes anybody's work about anything. It's easy to join. And it's called Poppy. So I published it on the 11th of the 11th. 2017 and it's about a little girl experiencing food poverty but she doesn't quite understand what she's experiencing and last time I looked 12 and a half thousand people had read that story and I'm pretty sure quite a lot of my articles well nowhere near 12 and a half thousand let's say that so so it's a different it's an interesting way to you know to get messages out and to get messages out that so for me I think it's probably obvious by now that you know my academic work is political I feel that it's political my feminist sociology is political I am a political being 
and this is another way to tell those political stories in in a in a different format really i've run quite a few workshops now on academic um on creative writing for academics and people love it you know because again people come they've never written a story before and then they go away with three stories or something and or a set of song lyrics and a story and a piece of memoir and I, the thing that I found quite interesting is that that it took me such a long time to kind of get to it. As I've said, you know, my dad used to, to do this and I never thought that I could. But as a nursery nurse, that's all about learning through play and being creative and all of this. And, uh, you know, although I've always thought that we play with our data, I've still, up until the last 10, 15 years, always done it in a in a quite conventional way, really. So, yeah, I'm glad I, I've come to it, even if a bit late. But yeah, I was just reflecting on that term playing with your data. And I really like the idea of playing with your data, but I, I suspect not everyone would like that, that kind of terminology or that idea. Um, we probably don't have too much time to go mm. into that now. So we'll have to, we'll just have to interview you again. <laughs> um, we'd like to ask you one question now, which does connect to your academic career more broadly. And we're just very impressed and interested in in how broad your research interests are in terms of your focus on auto forward slash biographical approaches, reproductive and non forward slash parental identities, the family and identity, teaching and learning and HE, prison and imprisonment, which is something both Renske and I are particularly interested in, and the sociology of travel and sport, and of course seagulls. Um, so we love hearing about all of these things. So we just wanted to know really for, for those of us who are sort of, you know, making our way through academic career paths, what are the benefits and challenges of, of having quite a broad range of interests? Yeah, I, I think the first thing to say is that I've been lucky in that I've worked in institutions where eclecticism has been encouraged. And I think it's part, it has partly got to do with the sector that I've worked in. So I've always worked in new universities and in those new universities, I've been being part of growing research groups. So it's fair to say, I think, that there was a little bit of, we really want you to do research and it's just good, at the beginning of my career anyway, it's good, good you're doing it and we don't mind what you do, it's just good that you're doing it. So that allowed me a bit of freedom that actually I think some people don't have and that, you know, some people are find that they're encouraged to be a bit more pigeonholed as it were having said that when I was at Coventry I was at Coventry for 10-11 years and I applied for a readership while I was at Coventry which I got um, and the vice chancellor called me into his office to you know say congratulations and he said but there is one piece of advice and he said the piece of advice is that Basically, you know, you're interested in so many things, you really need to tie it down to one thing or two. And you need to you need to decide what Gail Leatherby wants to be known for. And you need to concentrate on that. So I went away and I thought about it for a couple of days and I thought, I can't do that. I can't do that because I'm just was just and am so interested in so many different things that I just find it impossible. You know, I, I think the. I feel like the work on non-motherhood, disrupted reproduction and loss, that feels like my kind of big area. That feels like my main thing alongside 
the methodological stuff. So there's the method of the feminist autobiography, subjectivity, there's that. And then there's the work on non-motherhood, reproduction, loss, all of that. They feel like my main things. But all the other things, I just feel, again, something, particularly the stuff, the particularly the stuff that's connected to my autobiography. So the work on higher education, the work on, on, on travel, the, the stuff that really connects to my own life experience. There's a, there's a new area, too with a, a colleague from Plymouth, Tracy Collett, I'm currently working on, um, we're currently working on a project that we're calling the Sociology of Insults. So we're looking at, and we've given several papers and we're writing a paper and we're hoping, we're writing a book proposal. We're hoping to do a piece of research um, and we're looking at how insults play out at work in terms of humour or not. Um, in the political arena. It was Twitter that got us interested in this and the way in which people insult other people on Twitter. So um, I'm collecting a bit of data on Twitter. So I, I just, I, I went away, you know, and after the vice chancellor advice and I thought, I can't, I can't do it. If that, if that means, you know, that I don't get another promotion, then that's fine. I'm just going to do what I want to do because I was still allowed to do it as it were. The advice was just that I shouldn't. So I talked to a few friends who were professors at the time and I had some really great advice. And one of the advice what I was given was that be eclectic if you want to, but make sure that you can tell a story about what, make sure you can tell a story. And I thought that I could tell a story through my interest in gender and my interest in methodology. And so that's kind of how I've told the story of my interest in crime and and travel and and everything else, as it were. And then, interestingly, when I started to apply for professorships, I applied for a job at Plymouth. And when I was appointed, the person who appointed me said, we decided to appoint you, Gail, because you're so eclectic. So I thought, okay, that's interesting. So, you you know, you can't please all of the people all the time, but you can please people some of the time because it was quite an eclectic group. And so it, it was thought that I would help to bring kind of different groups together, as it were. So so I, I think that's really interesting. And like I say, I, I do acknowledge that it, it's not always easy for people where they are, but... I just kind of couldn't not do it. I mean, like I'm currently returning to a piece of work looking after a few years of not doing any work on higher education. I'm currently returning to a piece of work looking specifically at academic experience since the pandemic. You know, as I've said, I'm doing the interesting work on insults. I'm, you know, still doing some work and writing around reproduction and around loss and, I'm still writing methodologically and I just think it's, and now I'm writing, you know, outside of the academy, just think it's going to carry on growing. I don't think it's going to get smaller. But as I say, I am I'm conscious of the privilege there. I think that I've been privileged and lucky and I don't think it's always that easy. But I think if you want to do it, the way to do it is to think of how you can make some connections between what you're doing 
And often you can, even if they might feel tangential, you can make those connections. Absolutely lovely to hear you say it. And, and for me especially, there's um, so many parallels with my own experience. I was asked a very similar question. I was applying, I've again always worked at, well, typically worked at new, new universities. And I was applying to move from lecturer to senior lecturer. And on the interview panel, just one or two of the people obviously couldn't quite get their head around because I'd also had that great privilege and fortune and it was definitely just, you know, really good luck and support from really wonderful people to do a PhD in whatever I wanted, even though I was working in a very different faculty and sort of um, teaching area to what I was studying. But it was very much that view of, well, as long as you're doing some research, that's great. As long as some research is happening, we, we don't really need to know what it is. And that was a wonderful opportunity for me. But then as I sort of, you know, got more established in, in the role and wanted to move up, and I've been doing some sort of acting up and wanted to confirm that it was a case of like, we don't really understand what your research is or what's got, you know, couldn't you do X, Y, Z? And couldn't you, couldn't you make it this? And couldn't you make it that? And I, I would have gone away and had that real sort of, oh, I don't know what to do. But luckily the person who was leading the interview, who was the Dean at the time said exactly what you just said. She said, the thing is, Beth, is, is the story. As long as you can create a story, then people will be able to understand and I think Pat Sheed also had a slightly sort of odd PhD or something like that. So I've tried to take it with me, but it's very, very reassuring to me to hear you say these things and that you've actually then been given a professorship and people have really valued that eclecticism and doing different things. Because, of course, it is, as you say, some people do need to specialise more or, or want to. But I've always found myself a generalist and I like to... I'm Renske, you describe yourself as a magpie sometimes don't you <laughs> drawn to different things the different things excite us so it's just so lovely to hear all that you've just had to say it's been it's been great and I can't wait to read the insults paper twitter insults are one of my favorite hobbies <laughs> browsing through what people say yeah as I say I've um I've uh I collect them <laughs> as I've got more active they become and it was quite it, it was I mean this is obviously completely off point but still um I decided just this year to come out on Twitter as a professor because I'd, I'd been on Twitter for 2013 and and I'd not I'd not I'd not didn't have no my page I said I was a sociologist but I didn't mention my PhD or my professorship and over the last few years my Twitter feed has got more and more about politics I do tweet a bit about academia but it's mostly about another stuff but it's mostly about politics and I've got quite a lot of followers now too and 33,000 something like that something like that. so quite a lot and I read something from somebody else who I like a, a historian a woman historian about women claiming their titles and how important it was for women to claim their titles because women of course uh, and I've written about this often get their titles taken away from them and men get given titles and women get their titles away from them my husband and I had different names and he was a sociologist but he hadn't done a PhD and he'd get given the doctorate and my doctorate was taken away. So they could never understand that it was me was the one with the, that had doctor. So anyway, I, I came out, I came out on Twitter and said, you know, I've read this, blah, blah, blah. I'm going for it. And so my, you know, my bio now is professor, Gail Lesby and PhD, sociology, blah, blah, blah. And I was overwhelmed with the support that I got from people overwhelmed really so people were saying you know from all kind of not not just academic friends 
friends mostly outside of academia saying um, how important it was and how important it was that women did this because it was an inspiration for younger women and for girls somebody said something rick said i always knew you were clever so just really sweet really sweet and then but a couple a couple of people had a go you know and they were mostly men i have to say and there was one particular one where i went away i was i somebody had said something in support of me about it and i went i did some teaching i think and i came back to it and somebody had posted underneath this other person's comment sounds to me like someone claiming a status and a, and and a qualification that they'd like but don't have so they were essentially accusing me of fibbing and underneath it a whole load of people got really cross on my behalf and one person had wrote just Google her for God's sake, you know. So it was. It was really interesting. It was really interesting. Both the kind of the some of the insults, but the the camaraderie really was really interesting. So that's really interesting about Twitter. There's both. There's the insult, but there is also the the huge level of support. And you know, just thinking about death podcasts. You know, just thinking about actually the mostly around this issue. There is a huge level of support for people. And sometimes people talk on Twitter when they can't talk anywhere else about their feelings in relation to grief and loss. And um, that's a project waiting to happen, I think. Absolutely. So we'll uh, move on now, if that's okay, to some of your roles supporting research within academia. And we know you're part of the British Sociological Association's Human Reproduction Study Group. Can you tell us a bit about your involvement in that? Yeah, I joined a human reproduction study group when I uh, first began my PhD. So that was like 1990. I joined then and I always found it a really safe and encouraging space to share work and develop ideas. So I just found it so valuable that I think halfway through my PhD, the then convener asked me if I'd work with her um, to co-facilitate the group. So I did that for a few years, sort of like middle of the 90s to early 2000s, and which obviously involved um, organising conferences and, and, and um, seminars and such. And since then, I've been to conferences and spoken at them. I've done a plenary or two, but also spoken. I find, I find groups like that really helpful. You know, as I said, I'm a very active member of autobiography um the i've been to several of the conferences on death and dying organized through the bsa study group as well and i'm currently also the convener of the southwest regional medsoc group and i've been doing that for quite a long time since about 2007 with various other people and i really like being involved in all those different groups again partly because of my eclecticism so different groups give me different things as it were but I just think they're so helpful for people at all stages of their career, really. So, you know, as I said, I joined a couple of these groups as a postgraduate. And now, you know, I'm, I, I still find it, I still find them a really positive, safe space to share my own work and to find out about other people's work and what's going on in the fields more generally. So I think they're a really positive way to network and often um, study groups which are smaller 
groups than big conferences are really good places for people who are either at the beginnings of their career or are testing out something that they want to explore further. And you know, like my most recent experience is that with Tracy Collett, who's the colleague I'm doing the work on insults, she's currently convening Southwest Regional MedSoc group with me. And we ordered, we all organised a one-day conference in February, February or March anyway, a month or so ago, on health and illness interactions. And we had a day's conference. We had nine or ten papers. We had, we did it on Zoom. We had 22 people in the room. And the conversation just really continued throughout the day. It was a small group, so everybody spoke. You know, everybody felt comfortable. I just think we need groups like this really to um again you know in the hustle and bustle of um our daily academic lives they're kind of places of sanctuary i think or they should be you know and it's important to make sure that they are i think you've also done quite a lot of editing work and you were the co-editor of sociological research online from 2009 to 2012 and the chair of the editorial board from 2003 to 2009. And you're also one of the founding editors of the Methodological Innovations Journal from 2012 to 2022, so present. So could you shed some light on your editing work, please, and why you think uh, these kind of journals focused on research methods are so important? Yeah, I got involved in uh, sociological research online after I'd published a couple of papers in the journal on my own and, and uh, with colleagues. I'd published a paper on with my colleague Jill- Gillian Reynolds on our train and travel work uh, there and uh, a methodological article came out of my PhD. And I really like sociological research online because it's uh, it's quite eclectic and it's very interested in publishing um, different sorts of things on different topics. And there's also some, although it's a sociology journal, there's some multidisciplinary work. There's quite a lot of um, methodological work there. I just wanted to become more involved because, again, I would found it so helpful for me. It's a bit about what some people call... Um, academic good citizenship I think it is about giving back something to when you've got something yourself the methodological innovations journal actually began in 2005 but it was a Plymouth based journal then so it actually um, was part of the university and 2012 was when it became more kind of public, as it were, and, and Sage have got involved, etc., etc. So the, the journal has grown, as it were. Um, the Methodological Innovations Journal, I love because it's just that. It celebrates innovation. So as well as new takes on more traditional approaches and methods, it we value different sorts of creative uh, approaches and because they're both online too, there are ways in which you can publish that aren't so easy in paper journals. So, for example, you can have photos or video clips or little YouTubes and all that kind of thing. I think it's quite interesting during the pandemic how we've all become a bit more skilled at things. Like I've never made a YouTube until the pandemic and now I've made three, you know, so those kind of things in online journals can be kind of part of the the discussion too as well as little voiceovers and stuff so 
So it's not completely altruistic. It is, I do think it is about giving something back, but it's about continuing to learn too. The other thing that I really enjoy as an academic is working with postgraduates. And I've done quite a lot of external examining for postgraduate. Again, I think it's because I'm interested in quite a lot of different things. I get interest, I get asked to do examinations in all sorts of wild and wonderful topics, really. And I just think that's the best, the best. You know, I learn something every time I read somebody else's work. So I think it is about continually learning. And um, I think you probably know this. I left full-time academia in 2014 and became freelance. So I'm now visiting professor at both Plymouth and Greenwich. And at Greenwich, I began a sort of, an extra kind of strand to my bow, I suppose you would say, in 2014, when I was asked to work with the sociology group as, a, as an academic mentor. And I'm also now doing that with some colleagues at Plymouth as well, and I've been doing for quite a while. And I just love that work because, it, of course, it is about the person that I'm working with, but I get something really valuable from it too. And I think... As we've already said, the work that we do with other people and the ways in which we can learn from each other, both substantively and methodologically, is the best bit about our job, really. And, well, there are two good things about our job. There's that. And then the other really good thing about our job, I think, is to have the resources, you know, the time, the access to so many accounts the academic knowledge and even to be paid for doing it so to have all these resources to focus on something that you think is really important that other people feel that you think is important too but they don't have the resources that we've got again it's about privilege really i never i don't ever for not acknowledge the privilege of that Wonderful, thank you. And as we come to a close, can we please ask you if you have any advice for those listening to the Death Studies podcast? You've already offered a few things, I think, but anything additional you'd like to share? Okay, okay. So um, this is quite difficult, really. It's a difficult question. I I, I did think about it, and I think I, I'm probably going to repeat myself because I've I, it relates to things that I've already said, but. I think it is about networking and sharing. So it's about finding safe and friendly and good places. I think it is about working collaboratively. And I'm really interested in, and I've written about this with others, of the difference between collaboration and joint working. You know, when when, when you, you see a publication with lots of names on, and there is a real difference between collaborative writing and, and joint publication, isn't there? So it's about, you know, finding people that you can work with either within your own academy or within your interest group, within your area that, that you can network and share and you can gain from. And I, it's about, it's about acknowledging, I do acknowledge the pressures that people are, that are under, but it's about taking up the opportunities that, you can when you can to follow your own passion really and and finding time and some space to do that without completely overtaking your life my mum my mum used to 
make a distinction between my work and my work work. So work work was like preparing a lecture or doing some admin and my work was writing a paper or going to a conference or something. So she'd say, are you doing your work or are you doing work work? And I've always kind of kept that in my head and I've been lucky that I've always been able to balance the work work and the my work, I suppose. You know, find us in the constraints that we have, try and find some special space, precious space, to work on your work, even if that means joining with somebody else, because sometimes if you join with somebody else, then you're committed to kind of doing it and it gives you kind of a bit more impetus, doesn't it? And don't be afraid to ever approach people to ask for help and advice. And and I think we're 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 all we're all peers and we're all at different um spaces on that career trajectory so you know some of my most valuable relationships have been with phd students that i think that i've learned a lot from i've just published an edited book with one of my phd students she's not a phd student anymore she's a senior lecturer in occupational therapy at brighton now and we published an edited book focusing on the PhD process as an embodied emotional experience rather than, you know, traditional academic approach to, you know, getting the job done, as it were. And I suppose that's relevant to, I think, to to our academic life more general, to whilst acknowledging all the stress, I wanted to swear then, that we deal with, you know, all that we have to put up with, I nearly did, um, all that we have to put up with, you know, there are some bits in it that actually are glorious. So it's holding on to the to the gloriousness. If that doesn't sound too wishy-washy and daft. No, holding on to the gloriousness, gloriousness can be the um, tagline of our episode. It's been absolutely fantastic to talk to you. And it's lovely for me because we're on video as well as on audio, just to see you both and to see Renska smiling away all the way through as well it's been it's been wonderful so thank you so much for your time well i've loved it how often do we get to talk about ourselves for an hour and a bit you know it's lovely thank you so much for asking me thank you so much so again lots of food for thought for further discussions and just further reflections and gail's episodes particularly made me reflect on my so-called non-motherhood and like the choice of not wanting to have children and I know you're on the other end of the spectrum with two children but I always find it interesting how much language there is around mothers and women and voluntary childlessness and involuntary and all the things around baby loss and the names around that and but also coming off the back of a Baby Loss Awareness Month, there are still not a lot of good words to describe what it is to, I think, lose a baby or to not have a baby and then issues around personhood. So all of this episode made me reflect about my identity and also I'm not a mother, but I do mother a lot of children. And also if I were a mother, I could not, if I also say this in the episode, I could not be the person I am if I would have my own children, because I wouldn't be available. So there are so many layers to motherhood and non-motherhood that I just absolutely find fascinating. 
Yeah, and I'm really interested in also how it functions in terms of adults. So often when we're sort of talking about or thinking about motherhood, there's there seems to be a kind of implicit notion of someone who is, you know, maybe between the ages of like 25 and 45 or something. And then there's this sort of frame within that of perhaps an expected time to have have children um, though perhaps that's actually narrower really because there's a lot of stigma around having children what's perceived to be too young or too old and what doesn't necessarily then get considered is 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 like that like people are mothers in their 80s people are mothers in their 90s everyone's experienced some form of of mothering and I wonder how much of the kind of attachment of the ideas of motherhood to the mother as as this kind of mythological idea doesn't take into account the ways that we might sort of all experience some kind of mothering how much of it is really really tied to a really horrible kind of blame culture and lots of guilt pressure and like relationships between mothers and daughters when they then have their own children and between mothers and daughters and mothers-in-law and all those kind of complicated mothery stuff I think it's wonderfully interested and I'm quite interested in it in the context of horror and of sci-fi and all these sort of genres that can really play around with some of those ideas of these monstrous mothers and and how things might come about but I do feel like as much as I love my own mother and I love being a mother I love being mothered I also think there is some some really horrible stuff and sometimes I do have days where I just think oh wouldn't it be easier to be a man or be a dad and I'm sure it isn't I'm sure it isn't I wouldn't give it up for the world not for the world but yeah well that leads nicely to our discussions of well ambivalence and motherhood and I feel that is such a key word with whatever and I feel also it's ambivalence is key in general with whatever life decision you make because children or no children I feel we always have or at least I often have these similar thoughts not around children but just about life decisions and the things we do or don't do and I think we if we relate back to motherhood there is as you say this idealism and romanticism of what and also a very narrow idea of what a mother should be and I use should between quotations and what a mother can be but also to just see women living their lives, making choices, doing what they want, making time for their se- themselves and being mothers. Like it's it's not one thing or the other, but I think there is this notion that if you choose for option A or option B, you also choose for all of these other, like you didn't select those options, but there's yeah. this <laughs> notion that you did. Yeah, there's a lot of pressure and a lot of judgment. And I think that counts not just to, to people who've had children would identify themselves as mothers, but also... To, to people who, yeah, there's a lot of people close to me who who are involuntarily childless as well as voluntarily childless. And those judgments don't go away and they don't. And I just, it this double standard and the, the, that men often don't get asked these questions is still so prevalent and so true. But I love the idea of that sort of embracing ambivalence in all areas of your life, because I think there can be a broader sort of pressure to have this sense of like, oh, I, you know, I chose this, therefore it's great all the time, or or I'm happy all the time, everything's great all the time. And in reality, as you say, most people are pretty, have some complicated ambivalent feelings about most things most of the time, because people are complicated, messy, wonderfully strange things, and and feelings are sometimes doing stuff we don't expect. Absolutely, and that also 
weaves in nicely to Gil's passion for autobiographical research and putting yourself in your research because and I'm I'm totally on our team. I know you are on her team. Like we cannot separate ourselves from the work we do and a lot of our interests are shaped by our own biography. And I'm always in awe of people like Gil who can write about themselves in their research and are so successful in doing it because as she also said there's the flip side of it is the critique of its egocentric or its navel gazing and all that yada yada but at the same time again it's also we don't ask the quant people like why are you asking the questions that you're asking it's always they're hiding behind numbers but they still make choices they still develop research questions and i feel again with qualitative research it's more it's a more open critique, but I feel with research and scientific work in general, we need to ask more about the self behind those research questions. That is so true. And it's been really on my mind this week. I've been talking to one of my sisters about this study that's come out that, yeah, it's for me raises a lot of questions about what wasn't asked and why. So it's a study that is sort of purporting to say that if parents or are not warm towards their children in childhood that your sort of parenting style will lead to greater levels of obesity in later life and apparently there are several sort of studies around this idea of how parenting might lead to this might sort of lead to that doesn't take into account things like the kind of culture and society we live in in terms of what food is readily available and or movement and food and and I was just like wow that's but and that study is like in the Guardian being like oh if you do this your children will be this so it's I was like I can only a few deep breaths a few deep breaths I need to unpick some of this try and just pull it apart yeah but it's also that that links to and I wrote this down and I didn't write I wrote down the direct quotes but Gail was saying bias is the four-letter word of social research and it's like all other four-letter words it's overused and misunderstood and I think with that or the research you just quoted like they don't acknowledge their researcher bias and like the questions as you say they are asking or not asking and also so many quite overtly not even hidden assumptions, but overt assumptions <laughs> about parenting and the long-term effects of that. That I'm also just something. How do these things get past ethical boards, or just that people think, yeah, this is this is a good thing to study or a right thing to ask? Yeah, there's a lot of ethical stuff to go into considering why that might be the focus of time, energy, and research funding over and above, say, for example, trends in in food or trends in attitudes towards, to be honest, I don't think it's anything to do with attitudes. I think it's largely to do with time, capacity to do things, people's, the kind of pressures of capitalism. But hey, that's my inner political set. (laughs) (laughs) But I acknowledge my bias. No, it's with a lot of those things. It's making a structural problem an individual problem. And then, den- and then denying that. Yeah, for sure. But yeah, I mean, I, I thoroughly enjoyed Gail's episode. Hopefully you all have as well. And we'll perhaps go away and read some more of Gail's work if you haven't already. And hey, if anyone's in Cornwall, UK, look us up and we can all go out for lunch together. And let's go, we'll fly you in. Fly you into Newquay Airport. Do they do Finland in <laughs> I don't know. Helsinki to Newquay. It'll be a good laugh. I'll look into that. <laughs> Thank you all and see you all again. 
Thank you for listening to the Deaf Studies podcast. You can find out more about our guests and their work in the show notes or on our website, thedeafstudypodcast.com. If you enjoyed listening to us, please leave us a comment, follow us on social media at the Deaf Podcast, and of course, spread the word.